Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And this is another one of our wonderful collaborative episodes with our favorite person, Carrie Shirts, the backyard professor, isn't it, Landon? Absolutely. We love Carrie. We love Carrie. And this is a really awesome episode. We go through the gospel topics essays and we kind of use this book as our guide, the LDS gospel topics series, a scholarly engagement. And we're just kind of going through them one by one, delving in and dissecting these essays. So today, this episode is about first vision accounts. And this was a really interesting one, wasn't it, Landon? <laughs> It's a lot of fun, yeah. Uh, trying to determine a uh, first vision, second vision, was it the third vision? Did it have no vision? Uh, it was, <laughs> yeah, very, very clouded. It wasn't. That's right. Very. Our, our vision was clouded. <laughs> Should we just say that? That's right. Maybe it was television. I don't know. Anyway, a very interesting episode. This aired um, a, a month or so ago, but we're now putting it out on Mormonish for all of our Mormonish viewers and listeners to enjoy. So we hope you like it. Let's get started. Thanks, everybody. The mustard. Here we are. Here we are. Welcome to the Backyard Professor live videos, uh, live stream that's going to become a video, though you and our beloved live audience get us as we are totally professional. We have a fantastic show for you tonight. Uh, Landon and Rebecca have been working their keisters off with fantastic guests if you haven't been watching them this last month, you need to get with it. They are really starting to become dominant in the world of kick the apologist butt. That's the new name of the game. And tonight we are going to talk about, again, it is a subject that I have broached in my videos. I know John Dillon has done so. I know Bill Rill and Radio Free Mormon have done so. And yet... It never gets old because new angles appear constantly with the con. Tonight, we are going to talk about Joseph Smith's first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, the ninth visions. <laughs> Let's get this show on the road. <laughs> Oh my goodness, with that introduction, you would think we're going to be alive and excited and well. How are you two doing tonight, Mormonish? Here we are once more having a ball. Yeah, once more. Here. Your intro always makes me want to do push-ups or something. Like it's so invigorating. So <laughs> yeah, <baby. laughs> 
<laughs> do it. Do a few, and then I'll do a few and land in loud. All right, I'll be back. No. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> that's my job. I'm the host. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll triple count for you so that we all do about 150 push-ups in about a minute. That'll impress okay. everyone. All right. Uh, here we are, and it looks like we've got a good crowd. Welcome to everybody. Oh, I see my dear friend T.O. from Hawaii, and my other dear friend Tim Rathbone, and my other dear friend Radio Free Mormon, and my other dear friend Patty Cake, and my other dear friend Mark Chris. I mean, all of them, Peter Higgs, every one of these guys, Doug Vincent, Chris Murphy, Donna Donald, everybody is my friend here, as usual, because I believe in friends, you know. Heather Reddick, thank you for showing up. Wanda Anthony, how are you? Max George, good to see you. Chris Murphy, Radio Free Mormon, the man with the muscle. Uh, not head, mouth, no, that won't. Anyway, yeah, the, the man. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to insult you. I'm trying to, you know, build you up. I'm praise. I don't even know what that meant, Carrie. <laughs> I'm not sure either. Maybe we can edit that out. <laughs> I doubt it. We're live. <laughs> now Radio Free Mormon has one on me. Oh, no. Heather Reddick, good to Mo see you. Good to see you. Donnie Lee Gringo, good to see you. Newton Lemos, marvelous, darling. Looks like the whole darn gang is here, which is always a delight. Mark Roach, good to see you. Captain Moroni. Folks, the Backyard Professor Live with Mormonish is so famous, is so popular, is so powerful, is so all-encompassing, inclusive of truth and light that even fictional characters like Captain Moroni show up. Now, come on, is that impressive or what? We're speechless. People. We don't even know what to say. <laughs> Here, I'll clap. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're laughing by now. So, okay, now, now, really seriously, tonight we're totally serious. We never goof off on this show, and and because of course we have to be professional so that we can get the message across, and so that everybody believes everything we're saying, except for one thing: we actually show the evidence for what we're saying. And that's what I love about having you guys on this show. You're such excellent researchers. Tonight's a great topic, Joseph Smith's first vision. Now, we are doing it because of the uh, church essays. Now, is it my under is my understanding correct? correct? You guys correct me if I'm wrong, but hasn't the church... Uh, somewhat kind of backed off the essays now i mean they they made a big whoop to do about hey we're gonna we're gonna come out now we're gonna we're gonna be honest with our history and all and now they're kind of backing off and changing them up and they're not pushing them anymore am i reading those vibes right you guys I, I don't know if they're not pushing them. I don't think they ever really pushed them. I think they mm -hmm. just put them out there to say they had something that they could say, we put oh. that out or we responded to that, and now they're leaving it behind. And, uh, but one thing we're finding is they seem to keep finding new angles to spin on it as people kind of call them on some of this stuff. So uh, I think they're moving on uh, and coming up with new theories that they can explain <laughs> why, why some of these don't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
uh, he, uh, a Radio Free Mormon has said something deeply, deeply profound in a surprising turn of events. Carrie will sober up over the course of the podcast. <laughs> I, I can't believe well, what's he, the fun he, in he, that. I mean, <laughs> you know, my own dear friend, Radio Free Mormon, is trying to convince everyone that I'm not sober or that I am going to get sober or something like that. I actually am sober. This is this is enthusiasticalism that everyone is seeing here because I love having you guys on because you do such tremendous work. So why don't we get started? We said hi to everybody. Uh, I see uh, Fine Girl, welcome back. Uh, appreciate you showing up too. And Marin Dameron and Crystal Christensen. I've got to mention a few people, you know, it flatters them and they keep coming back. Radio Free Mormon, I don't know who he is, but he's around. <laughs> so this is a good thing. Uh, Nikki McBee, thank you for showing up. Chris Murphy, Elisa Galeen, yes. Thank you for showing up. Okay, uh, we have said, oh, Barry Richens. Oh, I got to say hi to Barry Richens. And incidentally, you Mormonish. Uh, Barry Richens would be a hell of a man to put on your program too. He has decades of great experience of stories. So, and I'm going to put him on my show again too. Kel Stell, hi from San Diego. He says, "Welcome." Okay, now that's enough. That's enough. We are done with the bull roar. Now we're going to show you the bull pucky <laughs> from the church. Uh, why don't we? Uh, why don't we go ahead and get started, you guys? Let's talk about this first vision idea again. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I want us before we start, I saw several comments about what's happening in Cody. We just dropped a episode 30 minutes ago. Okay. It's just six minutes long. It's an update on Cody. So oh, anyone wow. who wants to get that uh, can go there. But uh, and, and your essay on Cody, Wyoming was exceptional. Okay. That was fun. Yes. So, uh, but tonight we're here to talk about the first vision. And I got to say, in all the time that I've known Rebecca, I have never seen her so upset as when she started reading this essay. This <laughs> essay taps my high. <laughs> I put up with a lot of gaslighting. I did for over five decades, but this essay, boy, they've taken it to a new level. So I'm going to try to control myself. But yeah, no, don't. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We're on the Backyard Professor Live. I oh, command okay. you to let her loose. Let her rip, baby. <laughs> I, I'm sure we'll see some of it. So, Carrie, if you want to pull up the, the slides. Absolutely. Uh, it's only an 1,800-word essay, uh, which is amazing based on all the problems. <laughs> that they can solve all the problems in 1,800 words. But uh, we're going to – so we're actually – this is another one we're going to kind of read. Um, and so uh, if you want to go to the first one, I'll have you read it, Carrie. Um, oh, we kind of do a little bit different. Uh, anytime you see this little Moroni with a horn, uh, that's uh, that's the actual essay uh, that we're reading from. So when oh, we start nice. reading through there, you'll know that that's the essay, and it's kind of italicized. Uh, so we'll jump in. We'll read the first two paragraphs, and then uh, we'll watch uh, Rebecca start showing throwing her shoes and stuff. So awesome. <laughs> I also I also want to point out the historical incredible idea here of seeing a Joseph Smith bearded in this first vision. Yeah. Now understand, and I, I was talking with Mormonish behind the scenes before the show, they might actually have an accurate portrayal here because Joseph Smith wasn't 14 when he had this first vision. He wasn't even 15. He didn't even think about it until he was in his 30s. So this could be actual. So here we go. 
Yeah, I right. think AI knows more than, you know, yeah. than most of us do about how old he was when he actually had the vision. So, oh. <laughs> Hey, AI art is awesome, man. I'm putting it in my book that I'm writing and it's fabulous stuff. So, and Rebecca's going to be in the book and Landon doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to squeeze him in. Oh, you know? <laughs> uh -oh. So, Joseph Smith recorded that God, the father and Jesus Christ appeared to him in a grove of trees near his parents' home in Western New York state. When he was about 14 years old, concerned by his sins and unsure which spiritual path to follow, Joseph sought guidance by attending meetings, reading scripture, and praying. In answer, he received a heavenly manifestation. Joseph shared and documented the first vision as it came to be known on multiple occasions. He wrote or assigned scribes to write four different accounts of the vision. And this is not... Uh, when I was raised, you guys, as a teenager, and I went through all four years of cemetery uh, or seminary, um, we were told that this was actually one of the anti-Mormon arguments to try to confuse us. And who is the father of all lives in confusion? Satan, Satan himself. And so if anti-Mormons are saying, oh, there's four different ones, then that is Father Satan trying to confuse your poor, precious little Saturday warrior minds. And now we see this church essay saying, oh, hey, look, there was many different visions and accounts. However, like Rebecca has noted in her righteous wrath, they're gaslighting this thing. Actually, they're just coming out flat out lying so much in it, aren't they? So, yeah. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Let, let's go to the next one and read the next one. This is where uh, I'll, I, I want to see uh, Rebecca's eyes glare as she. <laughs> hey, can I'm we get her to read it out loud? <laughs> if you read it out loud, we can see your eyes spit fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just have to say, even the first sentence, everything in the first sentence is, you know, very up for debate, right? Yet they, not this one, but the, the prior slide. Um, anyway, okay, let's move on to this one here. Um, it says, Joseph Smith published two accounts of the first vision during his lifetime. The first of these known today as Joseph Smith history was canonized in the Pearl of Great Price and thus became the best known account. The two unpublished accounts recorded in Joseph Smith's earliest autobiography and a later journal were generally forgotten until historians working for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints rediscovered and published them in 1960. It was a miracle. Um, since that time, these documents have been discussed repeatedly over and over in church magazines, in works printed by church-owned and church-affiliated presses, and by Latter-day Saint scholars in other venues. In addition to the first-hand accounts, there are also five descriptions of Joseph Smith's vision recorded by his contemporaries. So why are you so mad about that, dear? <laughs> oh, we're gonna, well, we're going yeah. <laughs> to get into that because he basically there's there, there are four visions that come uh, that Joseph Smith himself uh, either dictated or wrote. Um, and obviously the one that he wrote would be the most important one. It's a firsthand account. Nobody else involved. That would be the most important one. But there's basically four where he's either talking to someone and a scribe's writing it down or where he was writing church history with a, uh, with a historian or a scribe, and they're writing down what he said. So, so that's the four they're talking about. And then there's five others that are 
that are by secondary accounts of people that said, oh, I heard him say this and they wrote down or they wrote in their journal what he said as they were talking. So these are the nine accounts they, they talk about. Uh, there's some others that we're going to introduce that maybe don't count as these nine, but still to us are, are fairly important that we're going to introduce in, into this. Um, but when you when you go to the uh, uh, thing, the first thing that really uh, uh, upset us is, first off, how, how many of us have ever even heard of this, uh, of all these accounts? Uh, growing up, we all learned the 1838 uh, account, which is the one that Joseph Smith put into the church history. Uh, and in missionary discussions. Yeah. Missionary discussions. All of us know this. The problem is that didn't happen until the 1900s. It was early 1900s before they started even pushing this first vision narrative. Prior to that in the church, most people had never even heard of the first vision or they had it confused with other visions. So it wasn't until early in the 1900s that the first time it showed up in a lesson manual was like 1903. Um, so that's the first time the first vision, which is our, we, we all hear it's the founding, you know, doctrine. It's the thing that it's the first discussion. It's the very first thing we teach as missionaries. It's what shows we are the one and only true living church on the face of the whole earth. It is. Right. It is. And so to us today, it is vital that, that this be true. But back in the early days, that wasn't that that wasn't the case. And we're, we're, we're going to talk about that. But uh, one of the things that uh, that made Rebecca so mad was that sentence there where it says it was generally forgotten until historians working for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints rediscovered them. So it was the historians who rediscovered them. Let's well, hear it for historians. Let's talk about those church historians who found oh, this. Uh, uh, so uh, one one important thing to keep in mind is let's let's go to the next slide. We've yeah, all heard I, the story. I, I think it away already. I, I think we all know the story of Joseph yeah. Building Smith and his scrapbooking. Uh, I know when I was ninety two thousand. <laughs> remember all the scrapbooking that everybody uh, all the Relief Society would go do scrapbooking. Well, this is this is probably where that came from. <laughs> well, now listen up, people. I cut out my own dad's first vision too. So, oh. <laughs> so let's not just pick on Joseph. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's too sacred to share. I cut the damn thing out. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying. Well, this is one of the fun stories in the church because Joseph Fielding Smith was working in the church historian. Uh, department, uh, and he, he became the church historian, and then obviously uh, a prophet at one point. But as he's going through what's called letter book one, I think is, is what it was officially called, but it was actually written by Joseph Smith. And as he got in there, he found this 1832 first vision account written by Joseph Smith. You would think he hit the mother load. I mean, this is in the hand of the man <laughs> that he worships. That's a song in the yeah. hand of the man who. Yeah, I love it. I'm, Not it's only that he worships, it's, it's his what great grandfather, yep. brother, whatever you know. We're talking. This is blood. Oh, this this yeah. is this is a historian. This is a vital record. So, what do you typically do when you find a firsthand account and you're the first one to find it? Of course, go over it and rewrite it. You cut it out. That's what you do. <laughs> All of us would have done that. What's the problem? He read this and he said, this can't be right. Right. And so he cuts it out and he puts it in the safe of the first presidency. 
um, locks it away so that nobody can find it. This is in the 1930s, 1940s that he mm -hmm. locks it away in the vault. And there it sits for decades with nobody ever hearing about this. Finally, church historians find it. Yeah, that's what it says it? here. It says it was forgotten until church historians working for the church rediscovered it. That's what it said. And published them in the 1960s. Published them in the 1960s. But, so we want to tell a little bit about this story behind how yeah, this was found. That is not what happened. Actually, what happened is um, Sandra Tanner. Sandra uh, Tanner. The queen, Sandra Tanner. Uh, well, wait a minute. She wasn't Relief Society president at this time, was she? So her was actually pretty much a new bride uh, of, yeah. of, of Jerry. Very young. At the time. Oh. But oh. her mother, and I think it was her grand, her aunt, her aunt and her mother her I think, were, mm -hmm. were looking at these different uh, uh, church documents. And they were looking through the church documents. And there was there's a a publication called the historical record that was put out monthly by the church historian. His name was Jensen back in the 1800s, late 1800s. And so as they were going through the historical record, they found this, uh, this section that talked about the first vision and in it, everything was singular. It said personage. It, 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 uh, it had, it referred all to singular and it was clear that they were copying from something uh, that was, that was an actual record, and it appeared that it had been written by Joseph Smith. Well, they got another copy that was reprinted just a couple months later, and when they reprinted it, they had changed everything. Personage became personages, and angel became Christ. They saw that the whole first vision had been changed in when they reprinted the historical record. This caught Sandra Tanner's attention, and she brought it, uh, she wanted to ask the question. Rebecca, you want to tell kind of what happened from that point? Yeah, I just love this story. And I hadn't really heard exactly how Sandra was involved until, and I'm going to put on my librarian book club hat here, uh, this book that came out, Lighthouse, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, Despised and Beloved Critics of Mormonism. If you have not read this book by Ronald Huggins, this just blows it wide open as far as what the Tanners were doing. It was just incredible. Their scholarship with very limited resources, what they did, they were absolutely brilliant. So, so Landon's absolutely correct. She just something in her mind said, wait a minute, this does not work. And she wanted to get the information. So she was um, in contact with her own bishop, because of course, if you're going to write to an apostle, you have to go through your bishop. So she goes to her bishop, his name was Bishop uh, Kennedy. And she says, I, I want to write, I have a question. Will you help me write a letter to Joseph Fielding Smith? So they penned this letter together. And she said, um, she asked for a copy of Joseph's vision in his own hand, because Using deductive reasoning, she could see that there that must be there. That has to exist because why these conflicting accounts? She also asked for any information on places where Joseph Smith or Brigham Young identified the number of personages because she's starting to clue in to the fact that there's a difference here. So they write this letter and the bishop sends it off. And then a little while later, he invites her over to his office uh, 
to read the response from Joseph Fielding. And he basically, he calls her an apostate. He calls her a horrible person. He says that she's not a truth seeker. She's stirring up trouble. She's involved in a sinister conspiracy. I mean, this letter goes on and on and on. You can read it in this book, which is why I recommend everyone read it. You know, and Sanders just sitting there going, I literally was just asking for some information about my church's history. And then she asked the bishop, does this sound right to you? What he responded and the bishop's like, yeah, fair. Sounds good. Yeah. I mean, he had no problem with Joseph Fielding Smith um, saying all this to her. Well, Sandra is so tenacious. I mean, this is what you get from this book and her whole life. She's like, okay, well, all right. But what he said is, I'm not going to give you a copy of this document. And she's like, so you're saying there's a document, right? He basically let it slip that it does exist. You're saying there's a document. So she knew. I know. I know. You can't make this stuff up. I'm not kidding. It's so great. And so basically a little while later, she said, okay. And she wrote him back through the bishop. And she said, I am going to be publishing the two mimeographed copies. Keep in mind, this is the 60s. This is what kills me. They're writing letters, handwriting with stamps, mailing them in, mimeographing, uh, you know, information. She let them know, I am going to be putting this information out. The different versions from this historical record that I found looks like this is happening. There's a there's a confusion on the personages and they never wrote back. But that is basically one of the first things that they published. They were now in the publishing business to get the truth out there. So it's and an amazing story. Taking center stage, Joseph Fielding. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, And he was the historian. I mean, not only wasn't he an apostle, but he was the keeper of the gate, the keeper of the knowledge. And so to me. That was bad form, Joseph Fielding Smith. <laughs> yeah, well, everything he did was bad form. I, every yeah, time he opened his mouth, he was saying something stupid or doing I something. Know. Yeah, definitely uh, that way. So when you're the church historian, a highly trained historian, what do you do when someone calls you on this and you know you've ripped it out? Well, obviously you get your scotch tape out and you tape it back <laughs> into the book. Uh, so it looks like you never cut it out. And you can actually see on this picture on the right, I know it's, uh, but on that left-hand side, you can actually see the scotch tape where it covers up the writing uh, as he taped it back in, which today you just sit and go, this is a handwritten copy of the yeah. first vision, the only hand, the only one he wrote himself. And we've got scotch tape across it. The lack, the lack of appreciation and respect yeah is absolutely mind-boggling with, oh. with this idiot. And oh, I am being charitable. It <laughs> is fun. Well, so now he's got this problem because Sandra's, Sandra's saying this letter exists. He has to tape it back in and admit that, he, that it exists. And so this is the mid-60s. He then, it, 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 it finds its way to BYU to a, a student who is writing his uh, doctoral theses. And somehow this finds its way into his hands and he, he's able to write about it. And, and this is how historians working for the LDS church found uh, the, the document with, with Sandra Tanner and her uh, aunt and that doing all the work to actually uh, shake it up and make it come out. So uh, amazing story. And if, you know, if that doesn't make you appreciate Sandra uh, for that, uh, yeah. that, and you're not paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, Read I, this book, everybody. It's going to blow your mind. Not kidding. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It's my firm belief that uh, the Tanners and the Vogel are responsible for the church for the most part. And he is in the house. Welcome, Dan Vogel. They are responsible for the church realizing, yo, hey, we're being made to look like pudding heads here. We are the ones who should be kicking out the quality history, not our enemies. And they finally got a Holy Ghost revelation saying, yeah, you're behind. You better catch up. And that's why the Joseph Smith papers. So, And I'm glad Dan is here because his name showed up over and over again in the stuff we were looking at. Um, uh, yeah. a, a lot of the stuff that he wrote and, and that come up over and over. So it's good to have him to fact check us because there are so many different spins on this that you're going, am I, am I following this string right? You know, as you cross through all the different bump balls of string they've, they've thrown into your, uh, into your path. But uh, the, the last thing they said in that, in that paragraph or the second to last thing they said, since, since that time, these documents have been discussed repeatedly in church magazines and works printed by church owned and church affiliated presses and by Latter-day Saint scholars and other venues. We went to the footnotes in in here to see, well, where did they publish these? And uh, if you want to pull up the next slide, four places that that, uh, that they list as where these were uh, listed. The first one was in the 1970 uh, improvement era. Okay. Um, the second one was 1971 in a book uh, entitled The First Vision. Um, and I can't read that one uh uh, I can't remember who wrote that. Alan, I think, was his name. First vision in its historical context. Is it McKay? Allen, James B. Allen. James B. Allen, yeah. That's yeah. right, James B. Allen. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't know how many people uh, read a lot of James Allen. Uh, probably uh, Dan A very excellent I've read a few of James. He was in the Leonard Arrington years trying to rewrite the church history and open it up, and they shut him down. Shut him down. Yeah. And, yeah. and, it, uh, uh, and then in the Ensign, I say Ensign, it's probably Ensign. I don't know. I get uh, it's up for debate. Utah accent, Ensign. <laughs> <laughs> Ensign. 1996, they, there's an article about this. And then 2012, right before the essay comes out, uh, mm -hmm. there's a book that comes out. Oh, look, there's uh, only a 25-year gap there, and there's only a, yeah. So, I mean, you mention it every 10 years. That's enough. It's fine. We, we got it. It's fine. I, I went on my mission in 88, and I was born in 69. So, I was literally one and two years old when the first account, the first two that they mentioned come out. I went all the way up to my mission and and was home for years before this the, the, that third account came out. Uh, yes, but your testimony showed up when you were age one after you read that first account. After I read the improvement era. Oh, good. There you go. But, but it's interesting because we actually went to the improvement era and, and took a look. But if you go back to one thing, the one place it doesn't show up, it was never mentioned in conference. Never mm -hmm. in conference have they talked about this. There's not a conference talk that we could find that references On the first accounts of first vision, multiple accounts of the first vision that might contradict each other. Right. And I'm curious, I'm, I'm curious to ask our, our viewers and listeners if anybody, the other slide there, um, taught it on their mission, because I don't believe anybody did. That there I were more than one. I didn't serve a mission, but yeah, that's, I'm just curious in the chat if anybody. Yeah. 
Exactly. Because how would you even teach it? I mean, how inspiring is that? <laughs> so there was one, okay, maybe two. We don't know how many, but it was incredible. <laughs> I don't know how you would teach it exactly. Yeah, that's the spin they make right now is they're all, they all support each other. They make a more marvelous, right. more blended uh, narrative by having multiple <laughs> versions. And it's like, I sat and touched taught the first discussion in the MTC probably 70 times before they let me go out. Never once did anyone share this wonderful story of a second vision. And I can guarantee if I ask anyone here to tell me the first vision account, they will never say, oh, well, there was one that had one being that showed up, one that had a host of angels that showed up, and one that had two beings showed up. Everyone knows the two beings. There was one where Mr. Satan showed up. Yeah, well, he shows up in a couple of them as well. Yeah, but but we all know one, only one. So why are they telling us that this is so important? And why would you cut it out of the book when you found it and not bring it up to anyone? If it's so enlightening and so strengthening, why did Joseph Fielding Smith cut it out in the first place? Why didn't he run to the uh, to the president of the church and say, look what I found? Uh, but he didn't do it. He didn't uh, do it. So he obviously saw the problems as he read it and recognized that this was problematic to the church, and that's why he hid it. And but then, all that he kept bearing his testimony. He, as exactly. long as long as you bear your testimony, that's all that all that matters. Um, so uh, has it been has it been discussed repeatedly? I think every one of us who's been in seminary who's been an institute, who has been on a mission, this was not taught repeatedly to us until they were caught and until they had to let this go and until the internet came out and people were able to, to start seeing it. But one thing that we we did is we dove in and we looked at, uh, at some of the, if you want to pull up the next slide, we actually went to the improvement era to see what is it that they that they included in that article. And they're and saying there's eight accounts. Well, yeah, because they have the contemporary accounts, as, the secondary accounts as well. Oh, okay. uh, but what they did is they they put this chart in here, and I know it's a it's a little hard to, to read, especially for us older people. Um, <laughs> but the, the point of this is uh, I want to I want to point out just a couple things in the uh, in here. Uh, first off, they did not print the four accounts. They reference them, they talk about them, but they can paraphrase control the narrative. They uh, don't tell you that in the 1832 account, only one personage shows up. Now, if you look at the chart here, one of the, one of the places there is um, two personages. And you can see that uh, the dots are all the way across, except for in the 1831-32 account. There they leave it blank where it says uh, appearance of deity that happens in every one. Well, it depends on what your definition of deity is because he refers to several of them as angels. So is an angel deity or not? That's that's right. the first point. But the, the one that says two personages, which I hope you guys can see that, but it's not it's not marked in the 1832 account. They seem to think this isn't that big of a deal. Uh, 1832, it's only the first ever written account written by the person who supposedly had the, the vision, but that doesn't seem to be that important that he... Well, no, because it out. was not, because Joseph Smith was not yet doctrinally correct. 
that and that's exactly that's exactly the truth and that that's that's one of the things that, that we want to look at but the point is if you want to look up the improvement area you can go online you can find it you can read the article uh, they do talk about the different um, the, the different visions but they completely control it they tell you what they want you to know about each of the visions you don't get to read the essays and in 1970 I don't know where you'd go to get the essays you can't go to the internet mm -hmm. to get them so uh, I'm not sure where you were supposed to go to get to, to get those, but I thought uh, it was interesting to see that it's the same kind of narrative. It's the same kind of tactics to not clue you in that there's something else going on. I mean, they started very early, decades and decades ago, with the controlling that narrative using the very same tactics. It was very interesting. I would suggest everybody go read this. It's fascinating. Yeah, you know, James Allen does a good job on that, mm -hmm. and I've got several different scholarly analysis of the first vision since that one and and of course bushman has now brought it out in dan Vogel, yeah, several, about it, yeah. So. 1996 in the enzyme uh, again they talked about all these different accounts but they reassure you that there's no problems mm -hmm. there's nothing to see there um they all tell us close narrative they can all be reconciled and it there, there's nothing to see here but again they don't print any of the uh, any of these accounts so that someone can actually read them and see for themselves and say, wait a minute, that's not what I was taught. Uh, so again, controlling the narrative is what the church does so well, and they've been doing it uh, ever since then. Um, but then the internet came out and that kind of uh, put a stop to it because people now can actually read it for themselves. So, okay, Carrie, let's go to the next one. Well, it hasn't put a stop to their deception. What it's put a stop to is believing what they say. Exactly. That's a good Interesting. point. Yeah, yeah, great point. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. We're not gloating about that. But after still 10 more years of Internet and Google God, for the love of crying, flipping out loud, brethren, you've got to recognize you're not going to get away with that anymore. I mean, man, it's just staggering. They think they can. So, yeah. You want me to read this one? Yes, if you could, Carrie. Yeah, I'm too mad at this section to read it. So go <laughs> ahead, Carrie. Yeah, yeah, this section. Yeah, no kidding. This one just killed me. Oh, my gosh. This one kills everybody. This is just, this is, yeah. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read now before I start getting mad with Rebecca. The various accounts of the first vision tell a consistent story. Bzz, wrong answer. Oh, sorry. The various accounts of the first vision tell a consistent story, though naturally they differ in emphasis and detail. Historians expect that when an individual retells an experience in multiple settings to different audiences over many years... <laughs> <laughs> hey, no snickering in the background. Each account will emphasize various aspects of the experience and contain unique details. Indeed, differences similar to those in the First Vision accounts exist in the multiple scriptural accounts of Paul's vision on the road of Damascus and the Apostles' experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yet despite the differences, a basic consistency remains across all the accounts of the First Vision. Yeah, it was all made up. 
oh, no, that's not them. That's me. Some have mistakenly argued. Oh, they're talking about us, guys. Yeah. Some have mistakenly argued that any variation in the retelling of the story is evidence of fabrication. To the contrary, the rich historical record that Joseph Fielding Smith didn't tear out first enables us to learn more about this remarkable event than we could if it were less well-documented. So there you have it. Rebecca, what is your beef with that poor diamond <laughs> truth? Come on, girl. Oh, it's just so casually stated. You know, naturally, when you tell a story, you're going to tell it in a different way every time. We all expect that, and it only makes it more and more believable. I think we all know that's absolutely ridiculous. And to use the example of Paul and the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, those were not first-hand accounts. We're talking about account written and told by first person, right? It's different when other people tell something. And of course, then you have the game of telephone. So throw those examples out. That's absolutely ridiculous. But the idea that you become, I, I think about being a mom and, and you know, your kid comes in and, and you say, what happened? Oh, this happened. No, this, no, it was this, no, this, you know, do you believe your child more and more? No, you're like, you're absolutely telling a fib to me now what really happened. So just this idea that they tried to normalize that um, and tell us those of us that question this idea are mistaken and not even thinking in the right way. It's just kind of infuriating to me. So what did you guys think about it? Well, if I may real quick, Landon, then you probably have the stronger point here. But in a court of law, and I yes. do have my dear friend, Radio Free Mormon, in the mm -hmm. chat, you'll verify this. If I was to testify as a witness that I only saw one guy do it, then that's one thing. But on another occasion, another witness comes and says, well, he told me that it was two guys that did it. And a third guy says, well, yeah, two guys may have done it, but there was a whole host of others with them. How credible would my testimony be? And I'm not trying to be facetious in any manner. Folks, one is not two, and two is not also many. Uh, these are number contradictions that call into question the testimony. If you can't grasp that, then you're giving Joseph Smith too much of a break, in my opinion. Landon, take it away, my friend. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I, I have to just simply stand back and say, why did Joseph Fielding Smith not give it to Sandra Tanner if it was so convincing and such a consistent story. Why did he say to her uh, that she You're was apostate. a satanic cult after the church because <laughs> she wanted the firsthand account from the prophet himself who'd seen it? Which yeah. is a rich historical record. Why would he not share the rich historical record with all of us? <laughs> That is fascinating, though. Yeah, his reaction tells you something smells yeah. like something yeah. bad in River City. This this is so what we see with the church. The cover-up is worse than the information that if you'd have gotten it in the first place. It's Watergate. It's, it's absolutely Watergate. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's Visiongate. And then they do exactly <laughs> what the church always does. They throw the Bible under the bus. They always right. find an example of, well, if you think that this is dumb, we can show you an example from the Bible. That <laughs> That's even dumber. Dumb. So don't, <laughs> don't criticize us. 
And it's like, okay, well, is there a possibility that both of them aren't actually true visions that somebody saw? That that can't even be one of the explanations. It has to be, well, because the Bible tells an inconsistent story. It's okay that the Book of Mormon or that Joseph Smith tells an inconsistent story because we see it all over the Bible. Uh, again, just just ridiculous. They're throwing people under the bus. And again, if it is such a rich historical record that enables us to learn more, why didn't they teach it to us? Why, since for 50 years, did it take until the internet came up, until they taught us this rich story? Because most of us, I can't say none, maybe some of us knew this, but I certainly never heard this. I was teaching seminary in the 90s, early morning seminary. None of this was in the stuff I was supposed to teach the kids. Wouldn't they want this rich historical message? It, it, their actions uh, just, just betray them. Hold their hands. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, of course, uh, you know, whenever we do a scientific analysis of anything or want to look at something scientific, we go to uh, Star Trek. Um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, hang on to your seats. We're going to go where no man or woman has gone before. Thank you to Rebecca Biblioteca Artistica. I feel like we work out our trauma with Trexmo. I'm not kidding, you know, because here you have a Spock saying, then I saw the Lord. I mean, a host of angels. I mean, two personages, a pillar of fire, a host of angels and angelic beings. I mean, God, the father and Jesus Christ. And of course, Kirk is like, uh, I now can't even read that. What did I write? Snap out of it, Spock. Snap out of it, Spock. Totally that's right. Illogical. What you're saying is totally illogical. Yeah, because that's exactly it. <laughs> and he looks like he's having a vision right there. <laughs> and, and this is exactly what Carrie just described. You know, yep. uh, it, when someone's telling the same story with multiple characters and multiple uh, differences, that doesn't strengthen their testimony. That, no. that detracts from their testimony. And it's it, he's talking like, oh, they're talking to different audiences. And that's why he's telling a different story. What happened to a prophet boldly declaring the mm. message? Why is he changing it for different audiences? Shouldn't he be telling the whole world the experiences that happened and let the world choose then uh, whether to believe it or not? Grand slam right there. Right there. What on earth? is this ridiculous apologetic that, oh, well, it's okay to tell your story differently if you're talking to them as opposed to these. And really? So is truth relative in Mormonism? They'll scream their fool head off against you, and yet they turn around and say, oh, well, in this case, it's okay. The truth of the first vision and the details is relative to the audience. Well, make up your pee-picking mind. Do we have the truth or do we have a relative truth? Kind of like relative morality. And they hate it when we bring that up. That's how they propose to teach it. So fascinating. Well said, Landon. Well, let's see how they explain this away for us and how they, uh, you know, get all of these to be uh, similar. Um, you know, there's multiple accounts. Um, that, that we read about some, as we said, are secondhand. But uh, uh, Rebecca, do you want to read that? 
Uh-huh, sure. And this is under the heading of accounts of the first vision. And it says each account of the first vision by Joseph Smith and his contemporaries has its own history and context that influenced the event um, was re how the event was recalled, communicated and recorded. These accounts are discussed below. And this is a really interesting picture. We just kind of found this online. It looks very spooky and otherworldly, but it, it shows the different, you know, versions of the vision, what was described in each one. So yeah, look at that. Yeah. I know. It looks very yeah. scary. <laughs> 1827, 1830, yeah. 1832, the 3435. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. 1835. Look at all those people down there in the bottom left-hand yeah. corner. I mean, there's a trillion of them. There's the hosts of the angels right there you know yeah it was a party yeah when you and look at it, none of these do the father or the son have a tie on this <laughs> <laughs> that's well, not sacrament meeting attire nope well we're gonna limit we're gonna limit to kind of the the four accounts uh right now to the four accounts mm, that, so uh, many. that uh, so many Smith, uh is involved with directly firsthand accounts um, so if we go to the next slide, we have the 1832 uh, account and the information about that. Um, Carrie, can you read that? Yes. The earliest known account of the first vision, the only account written in Joseph Smith's own hand upon paper, is found in a short unpublished autobiography Joseph Smith produced in the second half of 1832. In the account, Joseph Smith described his consciousness of his own sins and his frustration at being unable to find a church that matched the one he had read about in the New Testament and that would lead him to redemption. He emphasized Jesus Christ's atonement and the personal redemption it offered. He wrote that, quote, the Lord, unquote, appeared and forgave him of his sins. As a result of the vision, Joseph experienced joy and love, though, as he noted, he could find no one who believed his account. Okay, so this to me is the most important account of any of the accounts because it's written by his own hand. Uh, he was actually starting to write a history of the church, uh, and, and so he started to write this down. Um, if, if you go to the next slide, we actually have the account. Yes. Um, here and you can you can find this online you can go and read the account it's you know it's a little too long for us to read all the way through but i did highlight a couple of points here uh when, when he gets down uh towards the bottom that that might surprise us uh first of all he says it's in the 16th year um so he's not 14 years old um you know the one says 15th year this says 16th year um and then he, he's, but he says he was filled with the spirit of God and the Lord opened the heavens upon me and I saw the Lord. So this is what he described. He said, the Lord opened the heavens upon me and I saw the Lord. Now that sounds like one person to me. And if you go back and you look at the 1970 account where I pointed out the dot was missing from the 1832 account uh, for two personages, it looks like uh, Alan, the guy who wrote the, the article and who wrote all these books about it, that he saw that as only one personage. He didn't put a dot there saying this is two persons. He says this, is, this account only has one person. Um, 
then they said your sins are forgiven, uh, the world lieth in sin. The whole thing kind of seemed to be more about sin and J Joseph being forgiven for his sins. It He didn't have a lot of discussion here about a, tr a church and a true church and all of that uh, information. So when we read the account, we notice that Satan is missing. Uh, it's only one personage that's talking to him. He's there for a remission of sins, and that's why he went there. Um quite a bit different than what we would expect. But as always, um, you know, the church is able to, um, to explain this away. And the way they explain this away is they say, no, 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 no. This is two personages that he's talking about. If you look at the, what he said, he said, the Lord opened the heavens upon me and I saw the Lord. So he saw two personages. The first, the Lord, is God the Father who opened the heavens. And the second, the Lord, is Jesus Christ, who is the one who talked to him. So it wouldn't seem odd that he would focus on the second the Lord. who was talking to him all the time and just focus on that and call him the Lord. So two personages, the Lord, is not singular, as every one of us who studies English would think, but the Lord... <laughs> is actually plural, and it doesn't contradict at all with the message in the other versions. And they really think people are going to swallow that. I, I mean, I feel if they need to, they're going to. Do you know what I mean? If you're looking for something to hang on to, you can accept a plural, the Lord. Well, I let me like just say, much yeah, <laughs> let me just say, oh, Lord. And I don't mean the first one. I mean the second one. That, I, that's the exact same thing I said when I read that explanation. I went, oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Lordy Lord, as somebody said in the chat. Wow. How, how can college professors who have doctorates mm. in this yeah. go yeah. along with this? This okay. is a problem with a need for an explanation. Even the first guy who read it and wrote about it is thinking that this is only one personage and that he's not describing two personages, but they have to solve the problem. There can't be any conflict. And so rather than look for an, a reason why it might have changed from one personage to two personages, yeah. they have to describe why that one personage is really two personages. They, they're working it backwards. Yeah. The thing and is, is yeah, we, we can look at it, though, and we can say, well, why might there only be one personage in the 1832 account and yet two personages in the later account? And if you pull up the next slide, there's a, there's a reason for that. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a look at this. Holy Trinity, Batman. <laughs> Batman was there? Batman was there. What we find <laughs> out is that in 1832, Joseph Smith believed in the Trinity. He was still a person who believed in the Trinity, and the Book of Mormon reflected that. In 18, the original Book of Mormon uh, gives us several um, uh, areas where they talk about that. Um, and I'm going to go to some of these. Um, the statement of the three witnesses could not be more clear, and the honor be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, which is one God. The title page of the Book of Mormon, again, could not be more clear, and also to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. 
the book of first Nephi um, itself, uh, if we look, what happened is um, in the original, and you see down here on these uh, dates here, in the 1830 version, they said, Behold the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of, of God. Uh, they also say, Behold the Lamb of God, yea, even the eternal Father. Yea, the everlasting God which judged of the world. The Lamb of God is the eternal Father. In the 1830 Book of Mormon, we have a, Trinity, a, a, a God that's Trinitarian. However, by 1838, Joseph Smith has changed his mind on this. God is now. Well, now hold on. Don't let's give Brother Joseph a break. It was God. Do not say that. That's right. It, it must <laughs> be God right. who changed his mind because God made them go back in 1837 and change the Book of Mormon. The yeah. Book of Mormon, that's the most correct book of any book on earth in 18. And this is a doctrinal change. This, this is, is a doctrinal change. They yeah. argue that it was a miss, uh, a, a, a miss, you know, that it was written wrong or whatever. But if you look at the bottom here, you know, I read you the 1830 version. So behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of God was changed to now behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the son of God. So they've changed it now. Uh, the next one down, behold, the lamb of God, yea, even the eternal father is now behold, the lamb of God, yea, even the son of the eternal father. Yea, the everlasting God was judged of the world is now, yea, the son of the everlasting God was judged of the world. So the son, the lamb of God is the eternal father was changed to the lamb of God is the son of the eternal father. And in the day, it became Adam. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> that's a whole other episode, Carrie. We can't I mean, go there today. It's too I'm much. It's all interconnected. <laughs> it is. It's all related. So, yeah, so these are not discrepancies, which is really important to note. These are not contradictions. These are changes in evolving philosophies and theological thought, you know. And and I don't understand really why the church doesn't just say that. But, of course, they can't because everything's inspired and it's God, of course. But it makes perfect sense, absolute perfect sense as you see the trajectory, you see his thought process. But instead, they have to do all these gymnastics around the contradictions because they can't go there and say, hey, he was kind of evolving. I'll say that instead of making it up. I'll call it evolving. And, and, and why would Joseph, who saw God and Jesus were two separate people yep. for, in 1820, produce a book in 1830 where it says they're the same person, and then it takes him seven years to realize that they're not the same person and go back and make the changes. And remember when he was translating, the rock wouldn't go on until he wouldn't give him the next word until the scribe had accurately written down what was supposed to be there. So we know that the scribe was writing down exactly what was supposed to be written down, if we believe this. And there's no reason to go back and change it now. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's that damn seer stone's fault. <laughs> That's I feel do. like God might have been having an identity crisis himself. I mean, have we even explored that angle? <laughs> he was probably wondering, well, am I the father or am I the yeah. son? Am I yeah. one? Am I the God, son? My poor do I feel? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't know. It's fascinating, isn't it? The, it's the, the, yeah. <sighs> So, yeah, this is absolutely, uh, 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 we see the Trinitarian view of him changing over time. We get the King Fault letter. 
1837, they make the Book of Mormon changes. 1838, when he writes his history of the church where he sees God the Father, what is happening in the church in 1838? Nothing. A whole bunch of things are happening in 1838. He's just had the two, two of the three witnesses are leaving. I think we church. have a slide for this, Landon. I think we have a slide that we can go into on that okay. part. Let's go to the Trexmo. Yeah, let's wait for that. That's oh, right. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Did I say one personage? No, I definitely saw two. It, it was definitely two, I think. <laughs> and that's uh, very much uh, what, what we get from this. Um, let's see. Yeah, let, let's go to the 1835 account. Then we'll talk about 1838 and what's happening there. Yes, uh, exactly. There's another 1835 account. Um, uh, Rebecca, I can read that if you want. Yep, yep, I've got that. So this is 1835. In the fall of 1835, Joseph Smith recounted his first vision to Robert Matthews, a visitor to Kirkland, Ohio. The retelling, recorded in Joseph's journal by his scribe, Warren Parrish, emphasizes his attempt to discover which church is right. So that's something new. The opposition he felt as he prayed and the appearance of one divine personage who was followed shortly by another, of course, as divine personages tend to be. Uh, this account also notes the appearance of angels in the vision. He's just throwing in everything in the kitchen sink, I think, is what he's doing here in 1835, covering all the bases. Yeah, so we, we basically see a shift. We see his shifting. 1832, he's Trinitarian. 1835, we get two personages. Uh, I don't think they're described as God and Jesus. They're described mm -hmm. as two angels or two personages or angels of the Lord, but they're never, you know, specifically uh, told who these two pe personages are. And then, um, and then we get uh, uh, a host of angels that are involved as well. So uh, we've never heard about this host of angels before. Uh, and that yet now here, here we are. So, well, um, see, so maybe Joseph Smith embellishing this story is to impress this man, Robert Matthews, whoever that yeah. was. And so the church is correct. Joseph Smith has to tell the story differently to different audiences, depending on what he wants to accomplish. But my question is, what would that make all the rest of the world think? I don't think Joseph Smith thought far enough ahead. No, I think you're right. And I think it's interesting to note in the essay itself, again, everything is paraphrased. This is why we've included in the slides the actual accounts, because we would like to encourage everybody to go read those. There's there's more to it. And you'll see kind of these wiggle words and these ways that they're kind of, you know, speaking around it in the essay to describe, to make it sound all perfectly natural and normal progression. Anybody would say this, but when you read the actual accounts, you'll see that there's a difference there. But again, they're just kind of downplaying that. So it's important to read the actual the actual uh, accounts as written or transcribed. Excellent. Yeah. And, and, and I want to actually uh, point, th this is the first vision where we see Satan show up. Satan shows up this time before anything happens. And in this point, he's going to look for the, uh, 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 for the uh, answers to the, you know, which church is true and stuff. Uh, and then Satan shows up behind him. Uh, but I want to read the last paragraph here because this is kind of the meat of what happened and see if this sounds like the first vision that, that we're all aware of. He said, I kneeled again. My mouth was open and my tongue liberated and I called on the Lord in mighty prayer. 
A pillar of fire appeared above my head. It presently rested down upon me and filled me with joy unspeakable. A personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around and yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared like unto the first. He said unto me, thy sins are forgiven thee. He testified unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I saw many angels in this vision. I was about 14 years old when I received this first communication. So here we've got fire, a pillar of fire. And, and you could say, well, fire is light. No, he said it didn't consume anything. So this is actual fire and flames. A personage comes down and then another personage. We don't know who these personages are. They do testify that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Um, again, they forgive his sins, but they don't tell him anything about a, a true church or not to join any church. None of that happens. So we slowly see each progressive account gets a little different, gets more details that get closer to the 1838 account, but is not the 1832 account. And of course, at this point, we're, you know, another three years. At this point, we're 15 years after Joseph Smith supposedly had the first vision before we're getting these details uh, from it. But it's a rich historical record. It's a rich historical rich record. historical record that we never hear about. Um, I'm just saying. <laughs> absolutely. Okay, well, we go on to the 1838 Ooh, it's account. Our favorite one. That's this is right. our favorite one. Rebecca picked this fine uh, Lego renditioning <laughs> of the first vision uh, because Love we've all seen the, every picture of the eight, of the first vision from the 1838 account. That's right. I was trying to be different, just a little oh. different. <laughs> just like Joseph Smith with his various accounts. You're just being a little. That's different. right. A rich historical Lego record. That's what this is. So. <laughs> Uh, Rebecca, do you want to read that one? Sure. Yeah, this is the 1838 account. And it says the narration of the first vision best known to Latter-day Saints today. And why is that? <laughs> is the 1838 account first published in 1842 in the Times and Seasons, the church newspaper in Nauvoo, Illinois. The account was part of a longer history dictated by Joseph Smith between periods of intense opposition. That's the key right there. Whereas the 1832 account emphasizes the more personal story of Joseph Smith as a young man seeking forgiveness, the 1838 account focuses on the vision as the beginning of the rise and progress of the church. Like the 1835 account, the central question of the narrative is, which church is right? Yeah, so 1838 account... Um, one we all know and love and taught on our uh, on our mission uh, comes about in a very difficult time in Joseph Smith's life. Um, the two of two of the uh, uh, first two, oh. two of the three. You can go ahead. Go that next one. Yeah, two of this three, uh, of the of the witnesses leave. Oliver Cowdery's excommunicated for pointing out Joseph Smith's adultery. Um, David Walter, the young teenage girl in the barn, yeah, yeah, and for being a lawyer, we should point out that's the other. And for being a lawyer, yeah, he <laughs> didn't get out. He's a lawyer. That's right. Uh, or wanting to be a lawyer, I think. He, I don't <laughs> think he was quite a lawyer yet. Um, David Whitmer actually has God uh, speaks to him in a voice and tells him that Joseph Smith is a fallen prophet and that he is to leave the church. 
Of yeah. course, we're supposed to believe David Whitmer when he says he saw the gold plates, but we're not supposed to believe him when he hears a voice of God saying that Joseph is a fallen prophet. Um, Nor are we supposed to believe him when in his wit unto his witness unto Christ or whatever, uh, he describes the actual translation process with the seer stone either, because his exactly. account is much, much later. And that's a tight translation. And that really kicks the Book of Mormon's butt when it comes to the archaeological lack of verification. But I'm way off topic. But you know. <laughs> You're never David off topic, Whitmer's Terry. Never, never. <laughs> David Whitmer is credible when he shows us we're good. And David That's Whitmer right. is just a bully boy and don't believe him when he shows you something in the historical record that doesn't make us look good. That's how to do exactly. it. Exactly. And if you go back to the slide, I mean, we literally can call it a crisis of credibility Hence the picture there. He just doesn't seem very credible. I really question his credibility at this point. And then, of course, you also have the Kirkland Safety Society, the complete collapse of the bank. People have no confidence in him. So in the essay itself, here it says, uh, dictated during a period of a tense intense opposition, right? They call it opposition. And then they say that this vision starts to show the rise and progress of the church. So basically this vision was really important and needed to show everybody that, you know, hey, I'm the man. You got to go through me to get to God. I'm the one. I've got the church. I've got the power. He has to do something to improve his credibility, his, you know, stance, because everybody's jumping ship. So that's kind of how I look at it. Do you guys see it that way? Yeah, he's he's everyone's calling him a fallen prophet at this point. Right. He's lost all their money that he told them this bank was going to be the safe and was going to, you know, be the best bank in the world or whatever uh, story he spun for him. And now they're all losing their money. Uh, all of the people are leaving him. Uh, they're questioning whether he should even be the leader of the church. And then he comes up and says, Oh, by the way, guys, did I happen to mention that I saw God and Jesus and they told me that this is the only true church on the face of the earth and that I'm the one that was called to restore it? Who, I me? Over the last 18 years? Uh, Just well, oh, me. <laughs> yes, I lost all your stupid money, but hey, I've got the true church for you. It's a brilliant move, though. It's a brilliant move, you know, to empower himself and make himself look great. And people obviously bought it and they fell for it. But it was a brilliant well, some, move. Some of them. Yeah. 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 My ancestor. Did. My ancestor. Yeah. Yeah. My ancestor. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I'm here, because my ancestor bought it. Yeah. <laughs> Raise your hand if your ancestor bought it. Yeah. <laughs> They, they bought the farm, all right. They did. They did. Well, the, the, the interesting thing is the 1838 account was not published until 1842. Correct. So this is now 22 years after the first vision is the first time. Well, in 1840, it's published in a, in a pamphlet that part, I think Pratt or Orson Hyde. Or or Orson, Pratt. Orson Pratt. Orson Pratt. Orson, see, I got, I got half of it right on each name. <laughs> Well, you made up a new character. Joseph Smith got half of it right. One person. Right. So he put a pamphlet out in England that was that talked a little bit about the first vision. But the first time it's published in a church, uh, Times and Seasons, I think, is where it went. Uh, that the mm -hmm. that anyone could read about the first account is 22 years after 
he supposedly had the vision is the first time we have a written account that anybody can read. Okay, now hold it right there. I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but so obviously for Joseph Smith, can we legitimately say now in all seriousness, well, most seriousness, for the entire lifespan of the prophet Joseph Smith, this wasn't any kind of a missionary tool whatsoever. None whatsoever. There's not exactly. a single pamphlet, not a single written church yeah. manual. This was never talked about. Nobody, and we'll go even further to that, no one, including his mother, knew about this. Yeah. Oh, We're going to get into that. It's been there. It's just been excised by Brigham Young. Yes, yes. And we well, all know your mother knows everything. You may not think she does, but she knows. How dare you question Lucy Mack? That's but, right. But we will we'll we, get there. We will get to that and we will get to how they understood the first vision as well up until exactly. that up until that point. So there's one more account we got to talk about, uh, the 1842 account. Uh, this was written in response to the Chicago Democrat uh, editor John Wentworth asked for some information. We're not going to show this one or read this one because it's fairly consistent with the uh, 1838 version. Uh, the, the key thing of this is this is the story where uh, Joseph then shortened and made uh, 13 articles of faith that he presented to Wentworth. It's known as the Wentworth letter where he said what we believe in. Um, and so that all came from this. It's basically the 1838 account kind of rehashed, which makes sense because it was just a published in 1842 as well with the times and seasons. And so um, we, we see that. So um, let's go ahead then and let's go to the next account. Um, we we want to talk about some of the secondhand accounts. So we just talked about the primary sources. Uh, we want to talk about the secondary accounts because the essay talks about them. Um, it says here, uh, this is out of the essay, besides these accounts from Joseph Smith himself, five accounts were written by contemporaries who heard Joseph Smith speak about the vision. Uh, one was Orson Pratt. Um, and uh, so it was, it, it, yes, it's Orson Pratt in 1840 in a pamphlet called An Interesting Account of Several Remarkable Visions. Orson Hyde in some German uh Ein Rufhaus der Wust, yes. 1842. Very good, Terry. <laughs> you, are, you got your German down. Uh, Levi Richard in Journal 11 in 1843. David Nye White, Interview with Joseph Smith in 1843. And Alexander uh, Nybauer in uh, May of 1844. So uh, these are where we get the, the second-hand uh, accounts. And you can go and read those online as too. They're not nearly as detailed. Um, and again, they're secondhand accounts, so they're not nearly as, as strong as the primary accounts. Um, but one thing that is not talked about in the essay at all is the fact that everybody seems to be having visions in the early 1820s, 1810s, 1820s, 1830s in upstate New York. I don't know what's in the water, uh, but they're, they're all having these uh, visions. If you want to go to the next slide, um, um, I wonder if it was the father and the son in the water. <laughs> there was the holy water. That's it. There was definitely something in this water because uh, these were very common. In fact, uh, Richard Bushman identifies over 33 visionary tales published between 1783 and 1815. And we bring this up. All right. All right. Now it's my turn to complain. Okay. Go, really Carrie. Because... 
none of us were taught this. Mm -hmm. This this rich history of America in Joseph Smith's day from the church's angle, I taught on my mission that this is what distinguished Joseph Smith yes. from everyone else. Yeah. God had gone dark in the great apostasy. Yeah. And only with Joseph Smith, with this first vision, was the opening of the heavens for the restoration of correct doctrinal truths. Weren't you guys taught that in seminary too? No one else had this vision. Joseph Smith was fundamentally unique. And now the church historians show the real rich history. And it shows that the church has been feeding us bullshit. And that and, makes well, us mad. And you were led to believe that it was so unique that he was afraid to share it because no one yeah. else was having yeah. these visions and he better not tell anyone or they're going to lock him away in a loony bin. And that is not true. I believe it's an era. What we learned from Michael Quinn's magic, um, magic worldview is that contrary to what most people think, uh, most Americans were unchurched prior to this. They were not attending a church. They were reading the Bible at home. You know, it was more of a folk religion. And suddenly during this era, they start to become more churched. If that's, can I use that in that way? Church, attending church, finding church. And part of that is having these, imagining that you're having these heightened experiences. And so I think that sort of explains everybody's, like the slide says, you've had a vision and you've had a vision and everybody was having one. It was not unique in any way whatsoever. And not only were they having visions, they were publishing them in newspapers and periodicals and books. Everybody could write one down. And I think uh, looking at Joseph Smith's personality and psychology, if somebody else is having something fantastic happen to them, he has to have something even more fantastic happen. There's no and way the guy always, down the street is having always, a vision and he's not, he's got a one up it. Oh yeah. Well, I saw the Lord and he was plural. <laughs> You've got to do always had the like up. He yeah, outdo everybody and everything. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And he had no problem making up stories. Look at Zelf. That's Zelf, right? He had no problem so, inventing these things. So, and yet his was not published in the newspaper, where thirty-three others are documented, and many of them are written in the newspaper. Um, and, and his personal account was taken out, and only later Scotch taped back in. That's, That's how important his was. Yeah, 33 different visionary tales, man. 33. That's not, not, that's not uh, a small number compared to we were told no one else had those. And, and we, know, we know for a fact that Joseph Smith was aware of, these, uh, of many of these yeah. uh, visions. And it's amazing. It's commonplace. His story of God and his vision seems to borrow from the published yeah. accounts of these others. In fact, in some cases, it's almost word for word what he's yep. describing in his 1838 vision, a pillar of light, um, you know, the calling on. Yeah, and I think we have a slide for this that we can uh, yeah, kind of show the difference. You keep going, Landon. Yeah, this is very important. Yep. Rebecca, you want to hit these? Yeah, for sure. Um, exactly that. He would he read these, he would hear of these, and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, well, I did too, right? So, um, and these also are really interesting to read in their entirety. I just kind of pulled out 
um, some of the similarities. So you have Nora Stearns, this is 1815. Um, they're both near the brink of death. They're both interrupted by light. They both see the father and son in bodily form. They both struggle to describe the appearance and they both use the word pillar in their vision. They so both see the we, father and yes. the son in bodily yep. form. Yep. So that was not a unique restoration. Of not Joseph. at all. Doctrine. Yeah, yeah, Norris already knew that they were two separate ones in 1815. <laughs> yeah, Norris Dern, he had it going on. So, and then you have um, 1821, you have Charles Finney. And again, you know, these are just summaries. I would encourage everybody to go read them because they're eerily same verbiage, same language. It's almost frightening how close they are. So in this one, they're both impressed with scripture, both enter the woods to be alone to pray, both struggle to pray, both are overwhelmed by a power. They both fall into despair. They both experience weakness and they both hear someone approach and then they have an otherworldly experience. So I, we're just going to touch on a few Finney just to give you an idea. Charles Finney yep. was a very popular theologian, yep. right? Yep. Exactly. He yeah. He had tens yeah. of thousands of people listening to him. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So Joseph, I believe, would have heard of them. None of these guys really saw anything. This isn't, none of these are true. Only the, oh, no. Only the first vision true. is true. Yeah. yeah, we should make that clear up front. Right. So then if we go to the next slide, and again, we're just going through a few of these. And if you read them, it's just incredible. Um, Elias Smith, um, they both entered the woods in the morning. They both see a light and both of them claim some kind of divine encounter. So again, this idea that Joseph, it was too sacred, secret to share, not at all. Everybody was getting written up in the Reader's Digest if they had that back then for the visions that they were having. Um, also wild, um, you have, they both claim a divine encounter. They both lose capacity. Both are partial to the Methodist church. That's the one that they're leaning toward where they go and ask for more guidance. They both are told that all denominations are corrupt. So no original idea anywhere in any of these, both withhold additional information, meaning that they said, I was told many other things, but I just can't say anything now, you know, leave them wanting more. So between all these visions, they pretty much hit every point of this amalgam of a vision that Joseph Smith eventually arrives at. So it's really interesting to read these. And he had 10 and 15 and 20 years to put yeah. it all together coherently. Correct. Else. Correct. And and keep in mind, none of these are none of these are uh, true until we get to uh, these Joseph. visions in eighteen thirty. Um, That's correct. No, no, there are some other visions that seem to be true according to the church because they now support these are followers of Joseph Smith. Yeah. So that's if we true. go to the next slide. Oh, first we remarkable. have James Marsh, though. We have to talk about James well, that's, Marsh because that was slide. important. Yeah, that's we, yeah. But isn't it interesting right. that if if Joseph Smith's um, priesthood, vision, experience, translation capabilities, etc., was actually what God was going to do, why didn't he say anything to all those other 33 people when he had the chance to tell them, hey, by the way, pretty quick, I'm going to come to my true prophet of what I'm going to restore my true church through, Joseph Smith. You need to go look him up. We don't hear any of that from no, we do. We do. We're going to show you that. Oh, <laughs> uh -oh. I hold my tongue. Okay. <laughs> you want to hit, hit James Marsh? 
Yeah, so so we made this little heading. Uh, I love this picture that we found. Uh, Visions in 1830 were not alien. So this is an obituary that is published in the newspaper where Joseph is the editor. And of course, um, this is Thomas Marsh's son. Isn't that correct, Landon? I think yes. it was. Yeah. yeah. And so they were both 14 years old when they had a vision. They both had a vision and spoke to God the Father. And they both beheld the Son of God coming in all of his glory. So the reason, and so Joseph Smith would have absolutely been aware of this, I believe, anyway, it was published in the newspaper that he was the editor of. And I kind of feel him going, really, a little kid has this vision? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I really feel there was some one-upmanship here. But but the reason we chose this alien is Landon had such a good thought on this. If you think about it, like we talked about the religious fervor of the time. And of course, it's almost like a mass hysteria. Everybody's having a vision. I'm seeing God. Everybody's seeing it. Well, compare that to like, say, the Cold War era, a 1950s kind of a thing, you know, space race, all of that. What is everybody seeing? The same kind of things, aliens. And the encounters are all similar, right? You're being beamed up, you're being probed, you uh, lose time, lose track of time. It's almost like this mass cultural experience that everybody has to jump on that bandwagon. So I thought that was a great point that Landon made, you know, visions 100 years earlier, 100 years later, we're seeing the aliens with similar experiences and sharing them. And everybody's having an experience or a vision. And amazingly, we see no aliens in 1830. We see deity in 1830. Deity. Yep. People are becoming more, you can see that what the visions they're having are directly correlated to the cultural context of yes. the time. That yep. There's a great revival, a great, uh, you know, reemergence yep. of religion. People are seeing God. There's a space race. People are seeing aliens. Right. <laughs> Decades later, satanic panic, right? People right. are being influenced by Satan. In You've both, got all this kind of stuff. Cases, so, and in both yeah. cases, people are being <laughs> probed. probed. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say that. Don't forget, I'm a sci-fi fan. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> We love it that you're a sci-fi <laughs> fan, girl. Don't you ever change. So let, let's so go to this. Solomon Chamberlain. This is the guy you yeah. said, how come this never happens? Uh, yeah. Becky, you want to tell happen. the story of Solomon Chamberlain? Yeah, who is yeah, it? Yeah, he, he had these amazing visions. What year are we talking about, Landon? I can't even remember. 1816. I think he was 1816. Yeah. And his vision yeah. is too small for me even to read on my paper that I printed out. I swear. So you might have to read this. Well, I his vision read was so similar uh, to what Joseph Smith had. And then we'll tell you why this is relevant. Yes. About this time, the Lord showed me in a vision that there were no people on the earth that were right. And that faith was gone from the earth, excepting a few, and that all churches were corrupt. I further saw envisioned that he would soon raise up a church, that it would be after the apostolic order, that there would be in it the same powers and gifts that were in the days of Christ, and that I should live to see the day, and that there would be a book come forth like under the Bible, and the people would be guided by it as well as the Bible. This was in the year of 1816, I then believed in gifts and miracles as the Latter-day Saints do, for which I was much persecuted and called uh, deluded. The vision I received from an angel or spirit from the eternal world that told me these things. 
And we can probably stop there, don't you think, Landon? Yep. So basically, you know, very early on, he had this and he wrote this in his journal. And the reason we know about this and the reason that they talk about this in conference is because he later joined the church because he found his way to the Smith farm and he told them oh, his and his vision. Yes, exactly. He shared all this information. And so the church kind of spins this as he had a preparatory vision to prepare him. I know everything's preparatory, right? Preparatory priesthood, preparatory magic. It's all preparatory. But he had this uh, vision to allow him to understand that what Joseph was doing was correct and that he was a prophet. What else would you add to that, Landon? It's such an interesting little side note here, the Solomon Chamberlain well, story. I would point out that he went to the Smith's home. He yes. found the Smith's when he heard about the Book of Mormon being uh, translated. He went and told this story sitting with mm -hmm. the Smith family. Joseph Smith, the whole family. This, story. this is yeah. before Joseph Smith has written anything about his first vision. No, they haven't written it down yet. And no. yet all of a sudden, the details that Chamberlain described in the dream that and the vision that he had become the very same details that Joseph Smith puts in his vision of what happened. And uh, it, it's funny because he says, I was deluded, I was derived, I was persecuted for what I, we don't have any indication that Joseph's going, yeah, man, I know what you're talking about. Same thing happened to me, you know? Right, not at all. Uh, he, he, he takes this and then, of course, we see that uh, they use it in conference because he joined the church. Now it's a true vision. Now everything that he said was accurate, but the things that the other people who had visions that didn't join the church, those are wackos. We've uh, only got one out of 33, but baby, are we going to make half of this one? That's right. Exactly. Well, and he did put his vision in a pamphlet. Somebody is asking in the chat, and I don't have my notes right in front of me, but the Chamberlain vision is in a pamphlet that was fairly widely circulated, wasn't it, Landon? Yeah. And they do quote it. I'm looking right here. There's a first presidency message, April of 2010, in the Ensign, where um, President Uchtdorf talks about, they have no problem talking about Solomon Chamberlain because they see it as a confirmation, you know, right. this preparatory vision to confirm what Joseph is later going to say. And yes, he was a faithful member, and I think he stayed in his entire He's, life and yeah, championed member, yeah. Joseph. Yeah. So if you want to know more, Google Solomon Chamberlain, because it is a really interesting story that I think most of us don't know. And the parallels in his pamphlet that described his vision are just incredible. And again, you're right, Landon, Joseph didn't go, dude, that happened to me. <laughs> Let's talk about this. Instead, I think Joseph was like, what, Angel? Okay, what else? What else? Tell He's me what else. You know, I think it was uh, more like that. In fact, yeah. in fact, let's go to the Trexmo on this. Um, yeah, there's always a Trexmo. There has to be. Absolutely. <laughs> this is the best part of the presentation. Right? It works out our first vision trauma. That's right. <laughs> it says, <laughs> and then it came to me. Everyone seems to be having visions around here. I'm going to have one too. <laughs> We, we all know Joseph can't not be yeah. outdone by anybody. Yep. Exactly. Yep. yep, yep. He's always got to have the best, you know. So let's, the best have the best. let's go to the next uh, slide. And this is really telling. And that is, uh, let's talk about Joseph's family accounts. What did they say happened with the first vision? Exactly. And so we want to start with Lucy Mack Smith, because obviously this is Joseph's mother. If anyone should know about this vision, it should be Lucy Mack Smith. And so uh, I actually read her book, uh, The History of Joseph Smith by his mother, Lucy Mack Smith. 
And it became very concerning to me because I was reading the book and I, I was waiting to hear what happened with the first vision. I want to have her account because remember, he came in and he told his mom, oh, mom, don't worry. I found the Presbyterian. He, she's the first person who sees him after this vision in 1820, according to the history. So what does she report? Well, you read her history and she's talking about the ague or, you know, they had all these made up diseases that, you know, someone had in their knee and the rheumatism of somebody else. She described every sickness, everything that every one of her kids were doing. And then you get to where the first vision should be. And all of a sudden it says, and uh, I'll tell you the story of the first vision. And it's exactly out of the Pearl of Great Price, the 1838 vision word for word. It's copied out of the 1838 vision. And you're going, she just told me about, you know, the rheumatism in someone's elbow. And she's not going to tell me about the, her experience with the first vision. What's going on here? So rheumatism is more important than deity, I guess. And I have to point out that Dan Vogel is correcting our slide. And I remember that I did know this, but forgot this is Joseph Smith's sister. And this is actually in Wikipedia listed as Lucy Mack, but it's not. So all we have is Lucy Mack are those lovely oil paintings where she oh, looks so wonderful. Okay, so, good. yeah. So I'm correcting that because Dan, we are so glad we have Dan in the chat to keep us on track. So thank you. But continue, Landon. Okay. So Lucy, this is what Lucy said. Um, uh, th this is, so she, in her book, her book actually got published in England under a different name. Uh, and in it, we have the first version, which is actually her, her uh, first real writing, what she wrote. And this is what she said about the first vision. Our sons were actively employed in assisting their father to cut down the grain and storing it away in order for winter. One evening we were sitting, sitting till quite late conversing upon the subject of the diversity of churches that had risen up in the world and that many thousands opinions in existence as to the truth contained in scripture. Joseph, who never said many words upon any subject, which is hard to believe, <laughs> but always seemed to reflect more deeply than common persons of his age upon everything of a religious nature. After we ceased conversation, he went to bed and was pondering in his mind which of the churches were the true one. But he had not laid there long till he saw a bright light entered the room where he lay. He looked up and saw an angel of the Lord standing by him, the angel spoke, I perceive that you are inquiring in your mind, which is the true church. There is not a true church on earth. No, not one. And has not been since Peter took the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood after the order of God into the kingdom of heaven. The churches that are now upon the earth are all man-made churches. Holy crap. That's Lucy Max Smith's account. That's her account of the first vision. He's not that's in right. the sacred grove. He's upstairs in his bedroom. And who, that did, like who does that sound like? Yeah. It does sound like Moroni. And oh, it sounds not like Moroni. That Joseph Smith is talking about a Moroni vision he had mm -hmm. prior to 1832, but he's not talking about God the Father and Jesus Christ showing to him. And so everyone okay. seems to have this opinion that the angel Moroni is the first vision. Everyone in the early church seems to think that that uh, the first vision was this angel Moroni showing up to him and telling him where the where the plates were, which if we remember from his folklore, he was looking for a treasure angel to show up on that night uh, well, because he was yeah. looking for treasure. And he went to bed expecting to see a treasure angel. And of course, he saw an angel 
And this seems to be the story that all of his family members know about. If we and there's a that, specific date for that, too. Yeah, we, we have know. no date for the first vision. It's extremely nebulous. But in this, we know it's the equinox. It's 23. Somebody brought up, sometimes they wonder, is it Moroni or Nephi? Some scribes have made, made of questions. So, But the date was for sure known, and he was definitely telling that story around. But the other ones seem to have evolved later. So very interesting about Lucy Mack. Yeah, and if we go to the next the next slide, uh, it's interesting. Uh, the book that she wrote, History of Joseph Smith, His Mother, um, is a, uh, what happened was she wrote the manuscript that went to England, and Brigham Young said, this is full of lies. This isn't the true history of our church. And he required every member that had the book to turn it into their bishop or to mail it back directly to him uh, so that they so that they could uh, well, they could destroy it destroy and it. It correctly. So yeah. they destroyed the book. And it says, uh, I'm going to the second uh, paragraph here. Brigham Young knew that there were details in Lucy's manuscript that he didn't want to be available. In a journal entry on this subject, Wilfred Rudra stated Brigham Young's intent. He said he wished us to take up that work and revise it, correct it, that it belonged to the historian to attend to it that there was many false statements made in it and he wished them to be left out and all other statements which we did not know to be true and give the reason why they are left out. You can actually go to Signature Books and there's a link there and you can compare the side-by-side -side of Lucy's original manuscript versus the one that was released later in like 1850-something, I think. Um, uh, and uh, 18 Lucy's history was first published by Orson Pratt in England in 1853. I think it was like 1857 was the second printing. And that's where that's the version I read that had the first vision from 1838 in there. And I, I'm going, why isn't his mother telling the story? Well, the reason is, is because the story she told isn't consistent with the other stories of the church. But that's that's not all. Um Let's go to the next one. We have Joseph. Can I bring up one thing very quickly? Absolutely. I'm seeing in the chat that Dan Vogel, our resident expert, I yeah. love how RFM says he feels safer with Dan in the chat. Yeah. Thank I do too. Confidence, <laughs> RFM. But I do too. You know, there's a lot to wade through here. Um, but Dan Vogel says Lucy Smith didn't say anything about the first vision. It was Martha Carey added it to the Joseph Smith history in the times and seasons. So. Yeah. That's something to take into consideration. That's one of the yeah. historian books on Lucy Matt Smith yeah. that I've been looking into. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Nope. Absolutely. So, so thank you. You've got for that. the mother who was there to console him when everyone was making fun of him and and ridiculing him when he told his vision. And she seems to know nothing about the first vision. Right. Right. Yeah. The mother's yeah. always the last to know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so Joseph uh, William Smith then gives us an account. Um, he says at length, he determined to call upon the Lord until he should get a manifestation from him. He accordingly went out into the woods and falling upon his knees, called for a long time upon the Lord for wisdom and knowledge. While engaged in prayer, a light appeared in the heavens and descended until it rested upon the trees where he was. It appeared like fire, but to his great astonishment did not burn the trees. An angel then appeared to him and conversed with him upon many things. He told him that none of the sects were right, but that if he was faithful in keeping the commandments, he would receive the true way should the true way should be made known unto him that his sins were forgiven, etc. So this seems to match the 1835 account where fire comes down and everything else. But 
again, it's an angel now. It's not God and Jesus. It's an angel. And William was the patriarch of the church after Joseph Smith Sr. died. Uh, he was a horrible yeah. person. Uh, <laughs> but well, he beat up Joseph Smith. He beat up Joseph Smith. He was, yeah, he de de deflowered many women. He was he was quite a guy. Hey, hold on now. He was just following the oath and covenant of the priesthood of polygamy. He That's said so, probably true. This was a later recollection, I believe. It wasn't concurrent. Right. Uh, it's funny because the church will always say, well, this was a late recollection, so we can't really rely on it. But Joseph Smith's recollection was 22 years old when it was printed <laughs> and, and 18 years old when it was written down. But they don't. Yeah. Uh, evidently, 18 years is within the margin of error. Um, yeah. Right. But, uh, yeah. Anything longer than that is not. But again, we hear an angel. We consistently hear angel, 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 angel. We do not hear God and Jesus Christ whenever we hear about the, the first vision. Um, it gets a little worse. What do the prophets say about the first vision? Well, um, here's what Brigham Young has to say in the Journal of Discourses. The messenger did not come to an eminent divine of any of the so-called orthodoxy. He did not adopt their interpretations of the Holy Scriptures. The Lord did not come with the armies of heaven, although one of the visions he did say he came with uh, with angels, in power and great glory, nor sent his messengers, uh, panoploid, I don't, I don't know how to say that word, with a aught else than the truth of heaven to communicate Panoplied. to me. How is it? Panoplied? It's called, he did not send his messengers panoplied with aught else than the truth of heaven, whatever the hell that whatever means. that means, to communicate to the meek, the lowly, and the youth of humble origin, the sincere inquire after the knowledge of God. But he did send his angel to the same obscure person, Joseph Smith Jr., who afterwards became a prophet, seer, and revelator, and informed him that he should not join any of the religious sects of the day, for they were all wrong. Again, it's an angel. Brigham Young. Dan, unless uh, something else has been, uh, we couldn't find anywhere where Brigham Young had ever talked about the first vision with God and Jesus Christ both being in the vision. John Taylor here, just as it was when the prophet Joseph asked the angel which of the sects was right, that he might join it. The answer was that none of them are right. What? None of them? No, we will not stop to argue the question. The angel merely told him to join none of them, that none of them were right. Again, an angel. We don't hear about God and Jesus Christ. Um, that's pretty disturbing um, <laughs> that nobody who was around at the time seems to know anything, even though this was published in 1842. Brigham Young doesn't seem to buy into it. Um, John Taylor doesn't seem to buy into it. Again, it's not until 1900 whatever that, that this happened. And it uh, you know, some of the theories of this is, is that when polygamy went away, the church had to have a way to differentiate itself. And so it went away from polygamy and went towards this notion of deity. And that's why in 1888, in the historical record that uh, uh, Sandra Tanner's uh, aunt found, it didn't, it didn't bother the historian that it was, that it was one personage because that wasn't common knowledge that there was multiple people. And then somebody told him, hey, no, 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 we got to fix this. We're going with this two-personage narrative. You got to change the historical record to reflect two, two people, not one. Yeah. Um, 
So you want to go to our next uh, next slide there? By the way, Dan Vogel says, I have no idea what Brigham Young was thinking. None of us do. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, Dan. We're right there with you. That's funny. Here you go. You can read that one, Landon. Okay. Why haven't I mentioned any vision before? Well, I'm mentioning it now. Don't be such That's a hater. That's right. <laughs> I'm mentioning it now. <laughs> Anyone who's done this podcast, they know that as soon as you've done, said something like this, everyone comes out and says you're such a hater because you're yeah, such a hater, pointing out the history of the church, uh, but you're a hater for doing so. Why do you clown? We get called clowns a lot, which is funny to yeah, me. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, the prophet called us lazy learners, and that didn't stick. So that's right. it's all about ad hominem, and that's fine. Listen, okay. listen, clowns are heroes. That's why circuses are so popular and famous with kids. So I don't mind being a clown because it makes people laugh instead of a prophet that makes you cry. So there you go. Make them laugh. Make that's them laugh. It. All right. What do we have next? Make, make them laugh. laugh. That's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, this part yeah. is funny. Let's go to the arguments. You want to. Can you read that one? You I have it, yeah. Again, this I is can the essay. It. We're going back to the essay. Back to the okay. essay. And so, of course, they're going to let all the readers of the essay know that, oh, there are some silly arguments by some people out there. Of course, they're not going to mention the real arguments. They're going to mention some very light arguments that they can easily spin. So um, arguments regarding the accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision. The variety and number of accounts of the first vision have led some critics to, or reasonable people, uh, to question whether Joseph Smith's descriptions match the reality of his experience. Two arguments are frequently made against his credibility. The first questions Joseph Smith's memory of the events, and the second questions whether he embellished elements of the story over time. So the only arguments that they're going to address are his memory and his embellishment, which, as we all know, there are many, many other arguments, but this is what they're choosing to talk about. Yeah, they're not going to talk about the multiple visions of other people. They're not going to no. talk about, you know, the late dates that he wrote. Or it. that no family members knew anything. No or... family members or any of the differences in the narratives. Um, so the first thing they say is memory. And of course, we all know, oh, well, of course, people forget things. We've all been there, you know. We, uh, that, that's It's obvious over time you'd forget a few of the details. The problem is Joseph's narratives get more detailed the further. Exactly. Uh, further away they get. Um, Carrie, do you want to read the uh, what their statement is on memory? Yeah. Oh, give me the one with the small print. Yeah. Yeah, that's really small. It's all good. I got it. We like to look up your nostril. That's why we do it. <laughs> one argument regarding the accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision alleges that historical evidence does not support Joseph Smith's description of religious revival in Palmyra, New York, and its vicinity in 1820. Some argue that this undermines both Joseph's claim of unusual religious fervor and the account of the vision itself. Documentary evidence, however, supports Joseph Smith's statements regarding the revivals, yeah, in 1824, the region where he lived became famous for its religious fervor and was unquestionably one of the hotbeds of religious revivals. Historians refer to the region as the burned over district because preachers were 
uh, wore out the land, holding camp revivals and seeking converts during the early 1800s. In June 1818, for example, a Methodist camp meeting took place in Palmyra, and the following summer, Methodists assembled again at Vienna, now Phelps, New York, 15 miles from the Smith family farm. The journals of an itinerant Methodist preacher document much religious excitement in Joseph's geographic area in 1819 and 1820. They report that Reverend George Lane, a revivalist Methodist minister, was in that region in both years speaking on God's method in bringing about reformations. So this historical evidence is consistent with Joseph's description. Anytime you hear this church start talking about consistency, look that yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> Weasel uh, word. Yeah. And he said that the unusual religious excitement in his district or region commenced with the Methodists. Indeed, Joseph stated that he became somewhat partial to Methodism. So refute that, you critics. Landon, Rebecca, refute that. Well, it's very know, hard to refute unless you actually study. <laughs> so, no, we're uh, it, when, when this argument came up that there were no revivals in Palmyra, what they did is they went to the newspapers of Pal in the yeah. area. And every time there was a revival, they would report it in the newspaper and they couldn't yeah. find any revivals happening. They went to the church records of all the different churches. None of them reported these revivals. Um, it wasn't until 1824 that we really saw the fervor yeah. happening. Now, the church claims they found one in 1819, 1820. I think it was, they say, in Joseph's geographic region. I don't know how far out. The United States. There. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know if this is the Heartland model of the... Of, uh, of the, revivalism the or the Meso model. Or the one. Uh, we don't know. But... Uh, but the yeah. evidence was clear in 1824. There were church records where they reported, oh my gosh, 99 people joined, you know, in the last couple of months. And there were newspaper articles about, you know, this gathering and that gathering. So nothing, crickets really prior to that, but definite evidence of these revivals starting in 1824. But, but you see that the church is, the church wants to, you know, do a sleight of hand. Oh, no, he, the revivals, we, we were looking where we can find one. They actually sent 40 scholars to go try to find a, a, a revival somewhere in New York where he talked about all of these revivals and they come back with one in the area that they say. Uh, but we know it wasn't until 1824 that the churches actually, that in 1820, the numbers actually were declining in the churches in Palmyra. It wasn't until 1824 that there was a big, uh, you know, up, uptick in people joining the church. Uh, th these other churches. The thing is, though, what did they not discuss here? They didn't mention his memory about one person or two persons that he saw. They don't <laughs> oh, now just of, whether he was 14 years or 16 years old. They don't mention his memory of what year was this that happened, that this happened. And we actually, um, we, we uh, talked about this. And uh, if you go to the next slide, um, <laughs> Yeah, this, don't. this is six-year-old Rebecca. Um, <laughs> oh, I told everybody I was homemade clothes, homemade haircut. I told everybody I was raised very orthodox. I love it. 
But no, no Landon and I started talking about what do you remember in the past that was important? Because apparently, you know, the vision was the most important thing that ever happened to Joseph. He saw God and the Father. So I started thinking back. I'm like, what do I remember? I said, okay, I remember being six years old and President Nixon came to visit my hometown because my dad worked in the nuclear power industry. So um, I remember driving out there. I remember being on my dad's shoulders as he held me up. I remember President Nixon getting out of a helicopter. I remember security guards and speeches, you know, and I'm six. So I thought, okay, what kind of memory is that? I went to the paper. There it is. 1971. You, you know, there was, you even said it was I in the even fall. said it was in the fall. I said, I remember it was cold. It was in the fall. Yeah. So this was really important to me. Kind of a major event. A president came to visit, you know, my hometown when I was six. And I, I did pretty well on. I mean, I didn't say one president opened the door and then another president came out and I just called them both president. I didn't say that. <laughs> I knew there was only one. But, you know, I, everybody needs to think, what do you remember? Well, there is that. I am not an angel. <laughs> I am not an angel. <laughs> um, I am not God. They were so sad when everything went down with Nixon. Yeah, I don't know how this is morphing into Nixon. But again, you remember details of things that are very important. And seeing God and the Father, pretty supposedly aside from the atonement, the most important thing to ever happen in the world and didn't remember, changed the story and didn't mention it for decades. So interesting. Nor did any newspaper cover this event that he claims he told everybody about. Uh, it, it's, it's recorded nowhere. Uh, most important event in the history of mankind next to the atonement itself. And can't even, they can't even tell us what year, they can't tell us what uh, month it happened in. They only can say the spring of 1820 um, is when it happened because he seems to have no recollection of that. So, okay, we're going on to embellishment, trying to finish this up at a reasonable <laughs> time here. Yeah, we're um, almost done here. Always reasonable. You want me to read it? It's pretty small. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, it's pretty small. Um, you can do it, Carrie. Continue to torture me. You just like counting my nose hairs. Okay. The second argument frequently made regarding the accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision is that he embellished his story over time. So this argument focuses on two details, the number and identity of the heavenly beings Joseph Smith stated that he saw, and Joseph's first vision accounts described the heavenly beings with greater detail over time. The 1832 account says, the Lord opened the heavens up unto me, and I saw the Lord. His 1838 account states, I saw two personages, one of whom introduced the other as my beloved son. As a result, critics have argued that Joseph Smith started out reporting to have seen one being, the Lord, and ended up claiming to have seen both the Father and the Son. And we have beautiful evidence from Joseph Fielding Smith that that is precisely how they, he understood it also. Correct. So that's me, not this article. So right. uh, there are other and more consistent ways of seeing the evidence. <laughs> Here we go. Remember. Yeah, this is consistent way of consistent. Well, use that Consistently word. use the word consistent. Yeah, they consistently... Yeah, yeah, beyond our guard. No more lazy learning here. So there's consistent ways of seeing the evidence. So a basic harmony in the narrative across time must be acknowledged at the outset. 
Three of the four accounts clearly state that two personages appeared to Joseph Smith in the first vision, as if that avoids the contradiction. Yes. That, that's a ridiculously exactly. stupid point. Exactly. Okay, sorry. Okay, that's me, not the... Okay, so... The outlier is Joseph Smith's 1832 account. The one he wrote. The one he wrote personally. Yes. Yes. The only one written by the person who experienced it. Yes. The one that Joseph Fielding Smith lamely cut out. Yeah. Okay, so, and this can be read to refer what? Which can be read to, oh, yeah, to one or two personages as Landon, land, yeah. Exactly. The, the plural Lord. Yeah, the plural <laughs> Lord, yes. The plural majesty. But the 1832 <laughs> account does, oh, sorry, I'm skipping. Boy, talk about, I need to hear from someone. Do you, I actually have it printed out. Do you want me to read it? <laughs> if read to refer to, I'll finish this paragraph, then you take over. Okay. Okay, perfect. If perfect. to refer to one heavenly being, the Lord, it would likely be the personage who forgave his sins. According to later accounts, the first divine personage told Joseph Smith to hear the second, Jesus Christ, who then delivered the main message, which included the message of forgiveness. So Joseph Smith's 1832 account then may have concentrated on Jesus Christ, the bearer of forgiveness. And the only one who showed up. Oh, sorry. That's right. That's a nice way to spin it. So then they go on to say another way of reading, because they're going to tell you how else you might be able to wrap your brain around this. Another way of reading the 1832 account is that Joseph Smith referred to two beings, both of whom he called Lord. The embellishment argument hinges on the assumption that the 1832 account describes the appearance of only one divine being. Mm -mm. But the 1832 account does not say that only one being appeared. Literally, right there. Come on. <laughs> Come on. I'm sorry. I did not okay. have sex with that That is what I feel like I am reading here. That's why this essay just... God, just so much. lie about yeah. it. You know, exactly. Wow. Okay. But the 1832 account does not say that only one being appeared. Uh, note that the two references to Lord are separated in time. First the Lord opens the heavens. Then Joseph Smith sees the Lord. This reading of the account is consistent with Joseph's 1835 account, which has one personage appearing first, followed soon by another, followed by another soon after. The 1832 account then can reasonably be read <laughs> by, what reasonable by person, any I don't know. reasonable person I cannot even picture on the planet. It can reasonably be read to mean that Joseph Smith saw one being who then revealed another and that he referred to both of them as the Lord in a singular. Uh, the Lord opened the heavens upon me and I saw the Lord. So that's two people. Clear, clearly. Yeah. I'm, I, what, what was I thinking? <laughs> clearly. What was I thinking? Okay. Do I have one more paragraph? I can't yeah, even yeah, say one more. Yes, okay. yeah. Joseph's increasingly specific descriptions can thus be compellingly read as evidence of increasing insight accumulating over time based on experience. In part, the differences between the 1832 account and the later accounts may have something to do with the differences between the written and spoken word. Here's where we're going to find out that Joseph uh, really struggled with writing anything. And this explains a whole lot. 
1832 account represents the first time that Joseph Smith attempted to write down his history. That same year, he wrote a friend, which is very strange. He's writing someone to tell them how he can't write. That's wrap your brain around that. That same year, he wrote a friend that he felt imprisoned by paper, pen, and ink, and a crooked, broken, scattered, imperfect language. He called the written word a little narrow prison. The expansiveness of the latter accounts is more easily understood and even expected when we recognize that they were likely dictated accounts, verbal accounts, an easy, comfortable medium for Joseph Smith and one that allowed the words to flow more easily. That explains it all. Yeah, he can't have it. He has a hard time writing and expressing himself, and that's the reason that uh, this was a poor example. Uh, Dan, yeah, that's why there's only 29 volumes of uh, 900 pages each of the Joseph Smith papers because he did. That's his narrow prison. Yeah, yeah that's his that's narrow that. prison. Dan, Dan Vogel said something that was interesting. Uh, it's gone off the page now, but he said that uh, Joseph Smith, the 1832 count, doesn't say that a personage opened the heaven. Um, I'm not exactly sure. He said the Lord opened the heavens. He didn't say that, you know, somebody actually opened them, but that the Lord opened the heavens. Uh, and I'm guessing that's what he means. If, if, uh, if not, uh, there might be more to this that we don't know that Dan, that Dan's bringing up, but, uh, right. uh yeah, he doesn't necessarily say one personage opened the heaven and then another personage appeared. He said the Lord opened the heavens, uh, so it could have been just by his power that he opened the okay. heavens so that he could be seen. Um, so again, they're making a, a jump to, to that. Uh, but no, they would. That to me, the embellishment argument actually goes to the church and, you know, the embellishment award goes to the church for their fine uh, embellishment of one person becoming two persons so that it's consistent with, uh, what he taught somewhere else. In every case, Joseph Smith could not be wrong. Therefore, we're going to take the current thing and we're going to make an argument that works to make that uh, become true rather than look and say, why would he have changed it over time? They're going to make you do all these mental gymnastics and you know put your legs up over your head and all of this to make the Lord mean plural. <laughs> oh, no. Now Carrie's going to try it. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> So yeah, it's free Mormon says so whenever a story gets more elaborate over time it proves it's true. Right. Absolutely. There yeah. you have it. There you Well, go. and the essay is crafted with all of its um adjectives to make you sound like you're unreasonable if you see a problem with what they're saying and that right. you're of course reasonable, intelligent, you get it. You and just see it the way that they're saying it. Yeah. And consistent. You're a critic. You're not thinking clearly. You're not reasonable if you find a problem with what they're saying. So right there, you're they're leading you down that path to accept this explanation. Yes. And I have a perfect cure for that. And I've learned this through my consistent experience. I have learned to just simply say, bullshit. Wow, when, when they, oh, I, I, I feel terrible about this, but I will get over it. There it All is. Right, that was very consistent. The, the, the next slide is the conclusion, uh, Carrie. And that must mean I'm true. The, the next You're slide true. is the conclusion. I All don't right. want to read. We're not going to read this because it's the standard what? church. There's no way that we could ever know other than praying and, and right. getting a feeling that it's true. 
and right. seek after God and uh, right. Well, it, it does say neither the truth of the first vision nor the arguments against it can be proven by historical research alone. They so always that's finally that the takeaway: there you cannot know this right. Say about the Book of Mormon, yeah. the Book of Abraham, yeah. the Kindred yeah. Hook plates, the Melchizedek priesthood. The I mean, so flippin' what? Yeah. We're not out to prove anything false. We're asking, why are you so inconsistent and ignore the contrary evidence? Well, we want to go and ask ourselves some questions, and that's the next yes, slide here. This is our last yes, slide. We and we How can right. I They only gave us two arguments, right? And we feel there are way more than two arguments. They're just questions that you could ask yourself when you're thinking okay. about the first vision accounts. Right. So we thought these were good. Tell us those, Rebecca. I can't read. You can't read them. Okay, I'll read I them. can see the picture. Okay. <laughs> So ask yourself this, why didn't Joseph Smith write the official version of the first vision rather than have a, a, a you know, dictated to a scribe? Two, if the official first vision story was so important, why did it go unpublished until 1842? Three, if Jesus Christ and God the Father really told Joseph Smith in 1820 that all churches were an abomination, then why did he try joining the Methodist Church in June of 1828? We he read was, all those was, different articles where they kept telling him not to join any church. They re-emphasized it over and over, and yet he joined a church. Uh, he seems to have completely ignored what he was told uh, by God. Well, wouldn't you? Uh, well, I clearly have because I've left the church, which I was told <laughs> to do. Um, oh, gosh, that's not consistent. Uh. If Joseph Smith saw God in 1820, why did he pray in his room in 1823 to find out if a supreme being did exist? And that was, you know, before the angel Moroni shows up. Five, why did Joseph Smith fail to mention his first vision when he first wrote a church history in 1835? Six, if Joseph Smith could not deny that he saw God, then why did his own handwritten account uh, deny it? Um because he didn't say he saw God. He said he saw uh, uh, one angel. <laughs> uh, if Joseph Smith's first vision was the most important historical event since the atonement, then why didn't early church members know about it? Well, it was more important for us. He, he was saving it for the latter days. It's the ongoing aspiration. It's for us Saturday warriors only. If it didn't really happen, why couldn't Joseph Smith tell a consistent story about uh, such a powerful experience as meeting with God and Jesus Christ face to face. Why does the official first vision story contradict Joseph Smith's own handwritten testimony? If Joseph Smith saw God the Father in the flesh with the with a body in 1820, why did he teach later than God the Father did not have a physical body? In the lectures on faith. And, uh, yeah. and yeah, in the Book of Mormon, we see some uh, indications of that too. Yeah, uh, yeah. Why did Joseph Smith's mother in the extensive history of her son's life not mention Joseph ever having a vision from God and Jesus Christ or that he was persecuted for it? And one that's not here is why did Joseph Fielding Smith cut it out of the book and not share it with anybody for 40 years if it was so important? That is not testimony action right there. So we'll uh, we'll close this with Rebecca uh, and uh, her final. Is Rebecca going to sing? 
<laughs> no, 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 oh no. It was bad enough that uh, Landon maybe put up a picture of me as a six-year-old. I'm not going to say. <laughs> you did not want to give that up. I'll say that. Yeah. Well, I didn't have any teeth and, you know, it was what it was. It's okay. It's all good. It's all Let's good. Go to the last slide here. Oh, and it's, you're going to have to read it, Landon, because again. Oh, I thought it was big enough for you. Okay. It's not. And you know what? I should explain this to people when I say about reading. So I have contacts. Like I have super far. It's my close vision that's really hard to. Yeah. And my screen, it's like this big. I need a new screen because it makes me look. I don't know. Monitor. We need to invest. That's right. He says, I base my whole testimony on the account of the first vision. Which account? There are multiple conflicting versions. Well, I know that now. Well, uh, I know that now. <laughs> how many of us felt that way? Now I know. Oh, I didn't know. I know. It's a big life. issue. <laughs> yeah, it really yeah, they're is. Saying now, they're saying now, sing praise to the man. Well, based on what we've said, here's how I would sing it now. Praise to the man who communed with Jehovah and the Father and the angels and those other beings. <laughs> I would sing it praise to the man who did not commune with Jehovah because uh, I think it's pretty clear he never had this vision in the first place. Um, uh, again, just another thing that he added and built up over time as he had to to survive yeah. as a leader in the church. Uh, that's that's what he did. So this conniving and jiving for consistency on Joseph Smith's part is all ego based is all ego driven. I mean, that's the impression that we're left with. It was when he was getting in trouble with his credibility based on truly, I mean, let's, let's face it. Uh, the man for all his inspiration and revelation made some really, but stupid decisions, you know? Yeah. Let, let me go. Let me go screw this young little girl in the barn. Uh, I got, come on, Joe, really? You idiot. Uh, let me go ahead and promise everybody lots and lots and lots of money and then cheat the hell out of them and everybody loses their money in Kirtland. I, it, it goes on. Let me prophesy that we will take back our land of inheritance and then it's a complete flop. I mean, on and on and on. And he never quit. The remarkable thing is he never quit making really dumb choices well right up till he burned the nauvoo expositor <laughs> right up to that time when you really take a step back and look at it you go wow that is how a con man would have gotten away with it but not a prophet prophets wouldn't have made those kind of choices if they were inspired so i mean that you know it's just it's really Remarkable, once we have Russell M. Nelson to thank for calling us the lazy learners so that we finally stopped being lazy learners and have discovered multiple First Vision accounts like you guys. Yeah, right? Yeah. Fun yep. Yeah. Yep. So would you guys like to bear your non-testimony? <laughs> Should we have a closing prayer? I think I've said enough. I think we do that too often. We've said it all. I think we should announce what we're talking about next time. I think that's, do you know oh, what the next essay is? Oh, not only that, Rebecca, um, 
I'm going to be speaking at the Thrive in oh. September, on, in September 16th. We forgot to announce that on, in the opening. We did. Are you ready to go to announcements now, Carrie? Just like at a church meeting? Is that what we're doing? <laughs> well, brothers and sisters, if you would all show us your appreciation by the raising of the right hand. <laughs> yes, we now that have Sister Rebecca Biblioteca. Giving yes, us I have the announcement. <laughs> Yeah, so next time when we get gather for this Gospels Topics essay series, we're going to be talking about, and I don't have the title of the essay because I'm just going out of the book, but it's about uh, frontier, the frontier violence and violence in oh. Mormonism. And yeah, it's going to be a good Meadows one. Massacre stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right about the time of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which I can even announce this. So our book club and Mormonish, we are inviting anybody that wants to come down to the massacre site with us. Get, find your way down to St. George on September the 9th. That's a Saturday. We're going to take a whole tour with Barbara Brown and Richard Turley, and we are going to uh, check out the site. So anybody's invited. Just find your way down there and come join us in the afternoon um, on that day, September 9th. So anyway, um, other announcements are there's Vintage Thrive coming up on Saturday, September 16th. And Carrie is going to be one of the speakers and one of the discussion leaders. I get to MC. It's always flattering to be asked to speak and MC at Vintage Thrive. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anybody can sort of self-identify as vintage. Um, I would say the way to tell if it's for you is if you know how to operate a rotary phone. I think that might be something that lets you know you can probably feel comfortable at Vintage Thrive. Or if you watch Backyard Professor, you probably qualify. Yeah, or if you're here in this audience, you're probably Vintage Thrive. That's right. I'm antique enough. I remember using Morse code. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's true. But it's going to be a day for maybe like second half of lifers. It's going to be um, in pro at the Provo Town Center, the mall at the reserve. It's a kind of reception center there within the mall. It's on the 16th of September, Saturday. It starts at 10 a.m. You can go to Thrive Beyond Religion to get your tickets. Get it. There's going to be like a band and lunch and dinner are served. It's going to be a whole day. It's going to be really fun. So anybody could message me if they want more information or just go over to Thrive Beyond Religion. But as I said, our beloved Carrie is going to be there leading discussions and hobnobbing with the common people. It's going to be a really fun day. We're all common people at Thrive. That's what makes us <laughs> That's right. That's right. We don't have this patriarchal hierarchy thing. <laughs> awesome. Yep, all good. Yeah, do you have any other announcements? Nothing else. Nope. I'm just carrying water at the Senior Thrive. So. That's right. Landon will be there and as a younger person and he'll be supplying all the rest of us water who are That's older. Right. So I, I wasn't even old enough to get in, but they lowered the Lowered the age a little bit. <laughs> Again, <laughs> thank you so much for pointing that out, Landon. The old fogey's got to do something significant in our second half. <laughs> oh, funny, Gene Judge Judson just said, I'm on my third half of life. So I agree. That's awesome. <laughs> Gene Judson always has great comments. Hey, Gene, how you doing, Bubba? Yeah, he's great. Guy. He's awesome. Yeah, I would skip seconds and go for thirds, too. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, uh, who has the closing hymn? Oh, no, we're yeah, staying. I, okay, I attended an LDS sacrament meeting today to see a family member giving a talk. I haven't probably been to one for about a year and a half, and it was really interesting. So it was Not, interesting to be there. Yeah. I had to put on a sweater. So, you know, that was part of it because I had to, yeah. you know, can't do that. But, yeah, it was interesting to attend. 
<laughs> Moksha Raver says senior thrive. Yeah. Hey, I love you too, Gene. Don't Gene's use the word senior, vintage. <laughs> yeah, vintage, come on. <laughs> Give us old farts a break. <laughs> I mean, us vintage people a break. Like That's the right. Cool, the coolest thing I did after I turned 50, you guys, was it finally dawned on me, you know, uh, I really am 50 and I don't have to act like I'm 29 anymore. Yeah. I mean, I can let the actual, the, I mean, for real, the actual young 29 year old tough guys pick up the 50 pound bags of concrete now and stuff like that. And my life just became golden. Wonderful. When I quit acting, when I started quit acting macho and just became macho at 50. <sighs> hey, oh. a guy can dream whatever. It's eight o'clock here, so I'm ready for bed. So. Oh, holy right. It's, it's vintage bedtime right now. <laughs> it's vintage. Shut the hell up, BYP. Get off this. All right. Thank you, too. I always love doing these programs with you guys. You're you're just beyond spectacular. Don't let that swell your fat heads either, because I want you back for a whole lot more. We've got a whole lot more on these church essays. And then we're working on other things to where we will never stop entertaining you for the rest of our lives over the course of the next 219 years. We've written it in blood. We've signed a contract. We're going to stick around just for our beloved audience. So, all right, you guys, if you don't have anything else, I don't have anything else other than thank you so much for all of your love and support, and I love you too also. Thanks for being on my show again, and we're going to do it again and again and again and again and again and again. Praise to the <laughs> professors who keep showing up online. Do you know how to turn this off, Landon? Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.